It's great to be with you this morning. Um, lovely to uh, have the chance to uh, look into the passage that Nate's just read. Um, as he said, we're walking our way all the way through um, Jesus' life from his crib to the cross here on earth. And um, this passage from Mark um, probably comes around halfway through his ministry um, where there's a transition in, in, in what's being described in, in the Gospels. Um, before, before, just actually the, the, the chapter just before this one, um, Jesus appoints his disciples, the twelve. He's gathered his team together. And a large part of the preceding chapters is all centered around the miracles that he's been doing, these profound miracles um, in the area, all of these, uh, these signs and wonders that uh, are punctuating his um, early ministry. And then at this point, Mark talks about him starting to talk in parables. He starts to talk about these allegorical things which, which, which uh, teaches um, the people around him, his disciples, more specifically, what, what the kingdom is and what his mission is and what's going on. And so we see this, 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 this area of teaching that's starting to develop, and we've got a parable today that we can look at. But I want to also um, focus on something which is also clearing up and setting the groundwork for the ministry and, and what's happening with his disciples, and it's to do with the family. The passage today, it started about with his uh, message about his earthly family, and it ends with the start of his church family. So we're going to be looking at that as well, that book ending of the, uh, of the passage today, which I think is really important. So before we kick into the detail, I'd like to ask this question, what is family? And where does it come from? Our concept of family, what, where is this all from? Is it just something that's just happened or is it something more important, more profound? Now we all have experiences of families, earthly families, don't we? And if we're completely honest, some of those experiences can be positive and some of them can be, well, difficult, trying. You know, I've got a young family and uh, we do spend a lot of time uh, cajoling, arguing, berating. If we're really honest, it's far from a perfect family. But um, there is something behind the family, I think, and we're going to look into that this morning. Well, last week, Jamie um, won his uh, second cup match in his Mosey Juniors. And so they're going into the third round, the quarterfinals. And you can see the little, little team there. He's got kind of uh, 11 or so teammates, not like dislike, uh, dissimilar to the disciples. You know, they're all overjoyed by the fact that uh, they got through the cup. They get another um, evening meal at the pizza, pizza restaurant that they promised the first time around. So what is that? You know, the, the camaraderie, the brotherhood and fellowship of that family, is that all it is? Is there something more to it than that? We'll come back to that. So let's take a step right back, right back to the beginning of the Bible. Now, as Christians, we, we understand God as not just being one person, but three persons. We talk about God being a trinity. And it's the Godhead that's made up of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And all three persons are united in this relationship, this loving relationship, which um, is a mystery, but is also a profound expression or understanding of what it is that we're aspiring to. They're in this perfect loving relationship 
And when we describe a perfect loving relationship, although it seems hard to sometimes when we look at our families around us, that is another description of a family. It's a heavenly family. So it's not surprising when um, God makes Adam in his image that one of the first things he, uh, he announces when he sees Adam is that it's not good for you to be alone. He recognizes this, this individual, Adam, the first man, and he says, actually, you know, if you're in my image, I don't think you've quite got it all there yet. You need to be in relationship. You need to have this shared experience with somebody. And so he creates Eve, an equal to Adam, from his rib, flesh from my flesh. And God's, God's setting in motion a, a, an, under, you know, a, an understanding of where we are in the creation, which relates to him, but is also completed through kind of like this relationship aspect of his identity, his trinity. So what happens? What goes wrong? Because, you know, if we look around us today and we look at our families, we look at our relationships, even here in the church, we don't really see this perfect Trinitarian relationship being lived out. We are, in, you know, imperfect. And again, going back to Genesis, we hear that sin entered the world through disobedience and the relationships were fractured. We hear about how, firstly, Adam and Eve's relationship with God was was broken. We hear about their animosity to each other, blaming each other. Straight away we see these, these fractures in the relationship. The seeds of discord are sown in Genesis. And if you go a little bit further into, into the book, you hear about the first family, as it were, Adam and Eve having children, and again, another tragedy of the fall when Cain and Abel are jealous of each other, and Cain, build, Cain, Cain kills his brother Abel. Can you imagine that as a family? Your two children, your two sons, they fall out to such degree that one of them kills the other. I don't know if there's anything more, more, more saddening and heartbreaking than that. You know, at that point, the, kind of, the, the, you know, the Trinitarian kind of model, the image of God was, was really on the back foot. Now, they did have other, other, other children, and uh, it was a little repaired, but we know from the very start, that story, that the family was broken through the sin. And then if we cycle forward, so we go all the way from, from the story in Genesis to the first century, we hear about another family that's been formed, earthly family. And that was the family that Jesus was uh, incarnated into. We hear about Joseph and Mary and the Christmas story. But if you look into a little, little bit further into the Gospels, into the recordings, you hear that actually that little nucleus, that little um, mother, father, and child, or the baby, it's not the whole story. Actually, Jesus' family was much bigger than that. It grew into something much bigger. In uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 3, and also in Matthew 13, verse 55, we hear this. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James? Joseph, Judas, and Simon, aren't his sisters here with us? It's curious, isn't it, to see and to hear about Jesus' wider family. It's not something we talk about a lot. It's not something we dwell upon. But actually, um, 
He did have a family, much bigger family. What's also interesting to me is that there's an omission in that family and in the whole of the, uh, the gospel going, going forward from, from quite early on. In fact, Joseph, his father, is missing. His father is absent in all of the, the latter parts of the, uh, the recordings. And traditionally, the, uh, the explanation for that, why, why Joseph isn't there, is because um, he died. Probably when uh, Jesus was maybe in his late teens, 20s, you know, obviously the family had been enlarged. He's got four brothers. Don't know quite how many sisters, but he's got a large family, but his father has died. I think we need to empathize with that. We'll understand that a little bit more because that would have been a huge, had a huge impact on the family. Jesus is the oldest of the family, of the brothers and the sisters, and a lot of the responsibility for maintaining that family would have fallen on him. Providing for the family. We know that he became a carpenter. He was apprenticed with his father into being a carpenter. And if you can imagine... You've got, I don't know, six or seven kind of younger brothers and sisters, your mother as well. That's a lot of responsibility on a, on a young man. And he also knew grief. You know, a lot of us find it hard to really fully understand Jesus' humanity because we can see him spiritually, we worship and everything else. But actually, you know, the ability to understand the feelings of grief, losing his father at a young age, would have had a profound impact on his understanding of humanity, his humanity himself. So he was a young man, lost his father, had several brothers and sisters that he needed to care for, along with his mother. And that also explains a little bit about, you know, maybe some of the uh, questions about why didn't he get married when he was younger? You know, why wasn't he married in his teens like his parents were? Why did he leave it so late to start his ministry in his 30s? You know, if he was waiting for his sisters to get married, if he was waiting for his brothers to kind of grow up a bit and do their own thing and make sure they could support it, it, it answers a lot of those questions. Now, I'm not saying that I know all the answers here, but I'm just trying to get us into the understanding of where Jesus sat within his earthly family and what, what was going on there. There's also a, a passage at the end of John's, or, or, or the end of John's gospel which talks a little bit about him and his mother, which I think it's important for us to hear. So John chapter 19, Jesus says this. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to them, woman, here is your son. And then to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. That disciple was John, one of the youngest of Jesus' disciples. And you can see the closeness in the relationship between Jesus and his mother and also the need for him to ensure that she was being looked after. It echoes the kind of his role in the earthly family that he had been taking up to that point, how seriously he took it. So that's the context to his family turning up. And I'm going to now start to focus on the passage that we've got today. And it starts with this. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. And when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. 
Thanks, guys. Um, I've got an image of um, a map. I'm going to hopefully try it up onto the... Uh, there we are. Oh, it's wonderful, isn't it? You get to see me and the map at the same time. Um, so this is a map of, 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 the, uh, of the area at the time when Jesus was preaching. I'm not sure if you can see it. The text might be a little bit difficult to discern, but you can see at the top there, there's a Sea of Galilee. And in red, there's a place called Capernaum, which is where this passage is set. And if you look a little bit further down, you've got, uh, obviously, you've got Jerusalem right at the bottom there near the Dead Sea, and you've got Samaria nestled in the middle. And if you look at, through the Gospels, and as we go through the Gospels in more detail, you'll see that the, the context kind of changes. It keeps flipping between the lower portion, which is uh, uh, around Jerusalem, and the upper portion, which is up near Galilee. So I won't dwell on the, on the lower portion and, and the fact that Jesus kept on having to traverse Samaria, but there are stories, obviously, that we'll be coming into to understand a little bit more about that. If we focus on the red part, the part around the Galilee, you'll see that um, Capernaum is on the Sea of Galilee. And uh, we know that at least four of the disciples lived there. They were the fishermen. They obviously needed to be right next to the Sea of Galilee, otherwise they wouldn't have much of a business. And then Nazareth is not too far away, but it's about 30 miles away. So when it talks about Jesus' family, his earthly family, coming to confront him at Capernaum, you need to understand that they were walking 40, 30 miles. They might have, you know, it, it was a journey. It wasn't just going knocking next door and thinking, okay, something's going on here. We're going to find out what's going on. They would have gone on a purposeful journey to try and confront him. These are his younger brothers and maybe his sisters. His mother was there as well. And I'd love to have seen the kind of like the, uh, the fractions, the kind of tension in the family dynamic. Can you imagine James? We know about James because he comes into the story a little bit later when he's leading the early church. He's obviously a forceful character. He's got some, uh, you know, he's got something about him that can lead people. And he's probably angry. He's probably frustrated with his brother, his older brother. What's his older brother up to? Have you ever been in a situation that, with that in your family? Have you ever seen confrontations in families? They can be quite passionate. That's what was happening. That was what was happening with Jesus. He'd gone out to preach. He'd made, made a lot of uh, people quite angry. And his family is turning up to ask him what on earth is going on. Let's jump into the passage itself. We'll come back to his family in a bit. Reading on. As the teachers of the law who had come down from, down from Jerusalem... I'm sorry, and the teachers of the law who had come down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by, by the devil, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. This, um, this passage actually comes in each of the synoptic gospels. It's there both in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There are some differences, subtle differences across each of them. And principally, the other gospels 
seem to embellish the story a little bit more. They keep very much, they keep almost word, to, word for word, they kind of keep the story which is in Mark, but they also embellish it. And this is part of our understanding of where these Gospels are or being written and how they actually fit together because we, well, the, the consensus is that Mark was written first and then the shorter Gospel, and we've heard from John right at the start of this how Mark's character and his kind of identity is very interesting uh, as a very young man. He may have seen Jesus. In fact, he might have been the, uh, the son that was uh, um, in the family that uh, owned the upper room. There we are. But you know, there's these embellishments that come out of Matthew and Luke. It's almost they're like they're reading Mark and saying, yes, but actually also this. They're not disputing it, but they're actually adding to it. And if we look at the, uh, the passage itself, there's a couple of things that I'd like to draw upon in terms of its teaching. The first one is this. Divisions cause damage. And we know that in our families, don't we? In our earthly families, we see that. If we're divided, it can cause a lot of damage. And we also see it in society and in the church. We see divisions tearing, tearing families or pits of the church family apart. And we need to pray for unity in the church and in our families. The second point I'd like to raise is, or, or highlight is that leadership is key. In Jesus' parable, he talks about a strong man. Now, the strong man that he's, he's describing is, is, is actually thought to be the devil. What's happening there is he's just released somebody from uh, a possession, and he's tied up. He's saying, I've got the authority to tie up the devil, or tie, tie up the devil, and then others can move back into the house. But I think it also flips around and it says, look, if we have leadership that's being tied up, restrained, then we will also have problems within the houses, within the church. We need to look at our leadership. We need to make sure that we are giving them our prayer and our support. We need to pray for them. Leadership is critical. Now, the next passage is probably the hardest one to really understand, but I'm going to have a go anyway. I'm going to have a little, little play at it. It goes like this. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven of all their sins and even slander they, and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, for they are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Now, I think the last part of this uh, is, is critical. And Matthew's gospel is actually much better at explaining the context as well. Because he's rebuking them for attributing to Satan the miracles performed by the Holy Spirit. I think this is a little bit like when we're in our close relationships with people and somebody is offending them. Jesus had a profound close relationship with the Spirit as he does with the Father. And for somebody to come along and say, blaspheme the spirit, it's a little bit like somebody coming along to maybe the person we're closest to and telling us, you know, completely untrue, offensive things about them. He's very angry. He's angry with them for that. You're blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. And we see that kind of passion that comes out of Jesus. So I'm not going to be able to explain it all. I mean, the only other thing I would say is that there's a consensus that this is not, you know, this unforgivable sin that's being pointed to. It's not something we do simply or easily, okay? 
So I don't think anybody here can, can think or have the impression that they are guilty of that. We can be forgiven. We can have salvation. So let's get to the last bit, the church family. At the end of the chapter, we hear this from Jesus when his family does turn up. Who are my brothers and my sisters, he asks. Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. And it's easy to, to just glance over this. You know, it's just like, who are my brothers and my sisters? No, you guys are my brothers and sisters. He's kind of dismissing. He's almost a put down to, to the people that were outside, his younger brother and sisters, who he's actually probably spent most of his life providing for and working for and caring for. But I think there's something much more important here. Because what he's doing right at this junction, when he's formed his little close-knit kind of community of disciples, when he's pulling this, 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 putting this together this concept of the church, he's setting a mark, he's setting a foundation of what it was that was so profoundly going to be achieved through it. So we've got the Trinity up here, this community within the Godhead, this family within the Godhead. We've got the earthly families that we're all involved with. We've all had family relationships, some of them good, some of them not so good, but we've got some experience of that. And then suddenly, what Jesus is doing is he's setting a relationship, a family in the midst between those two. He's welcoming you up out of your earthly family into this church family. It's a profound link, a bridge, if you like, between where we are born into in this earth and where our destination is, which is a part of the actual heavenly family. Now, I'm, not, I'm sure I'm not the only one who's enjoyed watching The Chosen, which is a, uh, a program that's been streaming live, or actually it's been uh, given for free on a lot of the... Uh, the channels, you can get it on YouTube, but you can also get it on Netflix and uh, Amazon. And at the moment, they've gone about, about to start season four. They've gone through three seasons already. And there's, a, there's an episode in season three, episode five, around the similar time when, when, when this, this passage is starting to kind of like kick in and showing exactly what it was to be a disciple, one of the disciples for Jesus. I'd like to play that. We'll, we'll just give you an introduction to it. it Basically, the woman who had been bleeding for 17 years has just been healed by Jesus. And the Pharisees have confronted uh, Jesus, and they've said, because you've touched this woman who has been bleeding under our law, you are unclean, so you need to go and get yourself washed. Now, if you're in Jerusalem, you might be able to go into the temple and get washed, but these guys were right in Capernaum, so they could, they could use the Sea of Galilee to wash themselves. And so we see what happens so you guys, if you want to play the clip. You there! Oh no! Did I make you unclean? Did the priest send you? He thinks he did. We just wanted to go for a swim. <laughs> oh, I love this. Jokes it's so wholesome. <laughs> we were looking for you. Yes, to see how you're doing. Thank you. I 
I know I disturbed you. Ah, uh, it was a welcome disturbance. My favorite guy. Now, if you'll excuse me, I can't miss this. Twelve years. How did you survive? It's a long story. Good stories if we are. maybe not a, an image of Jesus that we're very familiar with. That's not something that we kind of like naturally just draw out. But actually, I think that's a really profound expression of what was at the heart of the early church. Those disciples who were listening to these stories, it wasn't just a dry story that they were listening to. These parables were being lived out and being experienced by them. And um, I'd like us to dwell on that this morning. I'd like to think about actually, you know, the heart of the Christian message, the heart of the early church's identity was born around this community, this little family. And what we hear about a little bit more later on, and especially in Paul's kind of writings, is this profound illustration of what happens to the, that body, that church that group of disciples and the fellowship, when it gets united as the bride of Christ with the groom, Jesus himself. It talks about this illustration of the holy matrimony between the body of the Christ, the church and him, and, and, the, and, the, bride, and, and, the, and the groom, Jesus. This holy matrimony. It's effectively, it's a re, reworking of the union with Adam and Eve, which was ordained by God on a much larger scale. It was, it's, it's, a, it's a way of replicating that Trinitarian relationship into a much wider set of believers, into a much wider body. And it's, of course, one of the reasons why we as Christians need to be very careful about you know, how we view marriage and uh, look at it in wider society. It's quite difficult now to really kind of understand why, what is our teaching I'm not going to go into that this morning, okay, but actually there are some very profound things within that 
use of that illustration that I think we need to be very mindful of when we're thinking about our marriages and thinking about society as a whole. And it's a promise. It's a promise that we will actually not only transcend our earthly families into this family which is part of the church, but also that that family which is part of the church will all be connected to the Trinity. And that's a huge, huge promise. Unbelievable. This bridge between our earthly existence and the Trinity has been made through the use of the family, through the use of the marriage. So in summary, we're called to be in a relationship with both each other and with God. That's because we're made in God's image. We're called to be in relationship. And just as Adam and Eve were bonded together, we're called to be bonded together. But sin has damaged our relationship with both each other and with God. And Jesus experienced both an earthly family with all its grief and its responsibilities, but he also experienced, of course, his heavenly family. When he was praying to his father, he had that connection all the way through, and he still has that connection, obviously, as part of the Trinity. And if we do God's will, in other words, if we listen and obey the, the head of the church, Jesus himself, then we are brothers and sisters in Christ and part of a church family. We've got the earthly family, the heavenly family and our church family. And the promise is we will be connected to the Trinity through Christ himself. I'm going to end with a, a short prayer. Dear Lord, help us to support and love each other as a true church family. Heal the divisions that divide us. Protect our leaders, our strong men and women so that our house stands strong. In our earthly families, help us to support and love each other as Jesus did his. Fill us with your spirit and help us to grow in the fruits of the spirit. Prepare us as individuals and as a church to be united with Jesus. Let his headship Always be the authority and vision that we look for.